For those remaining in the auditorium and watching online, please take your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Daniel. And it is our intention to finish chapter 3 this morning. Daniel chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at verses 8 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 30. For those of you that are new to us, we want to let you know that everything we do here at Grace Baptist Church is founded on, rooted in the Word of God. It is not our opinions, our preferences, our pet peeves. It is what God's Word says, thus saith the Lord. And so, as we do all things in our service, but certainly at this time, we would love to have you to have a copy of God's Word open in front of you. Perhaps you came this morning and you do not have a copy of the Bible. In that case, under the chairs in front of you, there should be a copy of God's Word. In that copy of God's Word is on page 692, 692, Daniel chapter 3. And please feel free to take that Bible home with you as our gift to you. Daniel chapter 3, verses 8 through 30. We want to look this morning at perhaps a very familiar passage of Scripture. And unfortunately, sometimes our familiarity with passages of Scripture cause us to miss certain key points of it. And my hope is that we will not do that this morning. The title for this morning's sermon is Resolved. We have seen this pattern throughout the book of Daniel thus far, and we're only three chapters in. Four young men are among those that were taken from the nation of Israel, kidnapped, captured by a foreign power, and taken to Babylon, and are serving in the Babylonian court because they are members of the Jewish aristocracy. They resolve that they're going to follow God even on foreign soil, which means not just that they are going to take a stand for him, but also that they are going to reflect his character to those that kidnapped them. Daniel is a very vital book in scripture because it not only shares with us what to do when there are disagreements between us and our authorities, our non-Christian, non-church authorities, but it also shares with us how we are to interact with them. And so in chapter 1, we see that resolve. In chapter 2, we see that resolve. In chapter 3, we've already seen that resolve, and now we're going to see it again this morning. But what is that resolve based on? That, I think, is one of the key points that we want to see. So follow along, if you would, if I, as I read verses 8 through 30. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered them and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods 
or worship the golden image that I have set up. Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. And they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of God. As we have said, our situation today is not dissimilar to the situation in the book of Daniel with one large exception or one large difference in that, in their case, they were physically removed from their nation, from their homeland, from their comfort and security, and taken to a foreign nation. In our context, our nation is beginning and in many ways has already become a foreign nation right under our very feet. We have not moved, but our society and our culture have. And so it feels by times that we are living in a foreign country. Of course, that has always been the case, because as pilgrims, as strangers and foreigners, whose citizenship is not ultimately Canadian, but is in fact the kingdom of God, 
We have always been foreigners. And yet it feels different and has begun to feel different in the last decade or so. How then do we respond? And I think the book of Daniel helps us greatly in that regard. In the first place then we see that Daniel's three friends, and we are not sure where Daniel is during this time, although we know in the last verse of chapter 2, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are placed as governors or satraps, some sort of authorities over the provinces, but Daniel remained at the king's court. That is an indication of where he was during this time, but we are not sure. At any rate, it is his three friends. We know the setup. We looked at it last Sunday. Pressure is on to conform. What comes at them then in these next circumstances? In the first place, they had to uh, sort of be on the receiving end of malicious accusations. In a crowd even this size, we asked everybody to stand, and two or three people remained seated, wouldn't be immediately noticeable. Conversely, even if everybody was asked to bow and two or three people remained standing, it wouldn't be immediately noticeable. And certainly, if your face is in the dirt, it's very difficult to look around and see if anybody else's face is not. Kind of like the little kid who says, hey, I saw somebody who didn't have their eyes closed during prayer. Well, then neither did you. But anyway, these three friends, they don't make a big deal of this. They don't announce it. They don't change their profile picture on Facebook. They don't go to the authorities. They don't go to the media, their brand of the media. They just simply don't bow. But others see them. And notice just the vitriol. They maliciously accuse the Jews in verse 8. And notice what they say in verse 12. There are certain Jews. They bring to the forefront the fact that they are foreigners. And they bring to the forefront, Nebuchadnezzar, you appointed them to positions of authority. Positions that we would like to have. (laughs) But they pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods. They do not worship the image that you set up. They are obstinate and arrogant. They are belligerent. They are defiant. You need to do something about them. Their attitude has not been belligerent or arrogant, but they do not indeed worship these foreign gods. Notice in the second place, then you have rage, tension, and conflict. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commands these three men to be brought. He's not so concerned that they have disappointed or even disregarded the image. His main concern is that they've defied him and his authority. And he is not happy about that. I don't know about you, but most people would rather do anything than be involved in a conflict. We abhor conflict. We hate it. Especially when the person that we are in conflict with is in a rage. It's tense. And he says, is it true that you did not do this? Every opportunity for these three young men at this point might be in their early 20s, 19 or 20, just to say, all right, all right, fine. But they don't. Not even when, in the third place, they're given a second chance. 
I can't imagine the faces of their malicious accusers. They were not expecting this. They were expecting immediate consequences. But Nebuchadnezzar likes these guys. So what does he say? If you're ready, we'll play the music again. We'll give you a second chance here. And that's attractive, or can be, in our context. In our work context. In our neighborhood context. Whatever context we're in, where there is pressure to conform to that which is not scriptural, that which does not reflect the character of God, when, not if, we are maliciously accused, when we come into a conflict, and then we're given a second chance, it's very tempting to not stand firm in the sovereignty of God, but to bow. And notice, this is one of the keys of this passage. What does Nebuchadnezzar say? He ups the ante, he ratchets up this standoff. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? This sounds very familiar. Goliath of Gath with David. We've met this before and we will meet this throughout scripture. This from the guy who had his dream interpreted and revealed to this God sits on his throne and says, and by the way, boys, who is the God that's greater than me? Now, now we have definitely a situation on our hands. We need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We do not go looking for a fight. Hopefully not. If you do, we'll need to chat. We don't look to cause problems, but when our resolve to stand on truth creates problems, and it will, because we are told throughout Scripture and certainly in the New Testament, Jesus said, if they hated me and persecuted me and eventually crucified me, how are they going to respond to those of you who follow me? And Paul will tell his servant Timothy, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Just because we haven't yet doesn't mean that we shouldn't expect to at some point. Not because we have brought it on ourselves. There is nothing redeeming or sanctifying about being a jerk for Jesus. But when that comes our way, how are we going to respond? Notice then in the second place that they are resolved in God's sovereignty. Verses 16 through 18 are the hinge, the pivot point of this passage. The scene has been set. Now what are these three young men going to do? What is their response going to be? In the first place, we see their supernatural courage. This is the sovereign of this nation. And he has their lives in his hands. And what, how do they respond to him? We have no need to answer you in this matter. This is not arrogance or belligerence. This is in the sense of we don't need to defend ourselves to you, Nebuchadnezzar, and we don't need a second chance. We are resolved. Where does that resolve come from? It comes from Almighty God. Jesus let his disciples know in those moments, we might think, how can I prepare myself for this? And Jesus said, in, the, in that moment, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. We've seen these moments throughout scripture and even throughout church history. To take a stand for truth. Not to put the focus on ourselves and not to be arrogant as we do, but to simply say, we are resolved. 
We ought to obey God rather than men. And that's not an arrogant thing, but that is our resolve. Where does this come from? Where is it rooted in Almighty God, as we have said? And notice the next four things. First of all, God's power is unquestioned. If this be so, you seem intent to throw us in the fiery furnace. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. Nebuchadnezzar, there's no question here that our God is more powerful than anyone or anything in all of the universe and beyond. He spoke it into existence. We are not fearful of you or of the situation. Because if our God desires to, he has all power. He is omnipotent. He is able. Notice that his promises are sure. Regardless of what he does in this particular circumstance, we do know this. He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Whether by deliverance or death, you do not have the final say, Nebuchadnezzar. And again, not in an arrogant way, but just in a reminder, Nebuchadnezzar, even over your head of gold and the statue, all of gold that you have made, there is a rock cut out without human hands that is greater than all human kingdoms, including yours. You have some sovereignty, but it is not ultimate. But there is an ultimate sovereign. And whether by deliverance from your hand in the immediate or by death because of your hand, God is going to deliver us out of your hand. You do not have our lives in your hands, Nebuchadnezzar. Our lives are in his hands. God's freedom is trustworthy. This might be some of the most courageous, bold three words in Scripture. But... If not, our resolve has not changed. God is able, but if he chooses not to, that's okay too. Life is difficult, and life as a believer in Christ, in a culture that dismisses him or increasingly despises him, it is even harder what frees us is God's freedom. God is able to do as he wishes. And whatever he does is good because he is good. His freedom, God's freedom, is something that we can trust in all circumstances. And notice that his truth is stabilizing. What puts steel in our spine and iron in our guts is that we know the truth. We will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These young men are very well aware of the Ten Commandments. And the first is that you will have no other gods other than me. And the second is that you will not make an image. Not even an image of me. I cannot be depicted with tangible things. I am the intangible, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, omnibenevolent God. That's what keeps these young men, even in this circumstance. Now know this. If we take a stand for truth, not arrogantly, not belligerently, but a stand for truth nonetheless, that stand will be tested. And notice then in the third place, their resolve absolutely is tested. Now if Nebuchadnezzar was mad before, the text makes it clear to us that he gets even more angry. He's filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against these three young men. 
Again, the fact that he gave him a second chance indicates that he has a bit of a soft spot for these guys, and in fact, he's the one that promoted them to the positions they currently hold. But now, he views their descent as obstinacy, and he is furious. There is no cap. Nebuchadnezzar is seeing red, we might say. He is fully furious. He orders the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. I don't know if they had ancient thermometers. The point of the text is he wants this as hot as they can possibly get it. And then he binds these three men and orders the mighty men of his army. Again, unnecessary. Even the smallest guy in the army could have carried out this task. But there is something even in the carrying out of the task itself Nebuchadnezzar wants it shown that he is mighty, he is strong, even though he is finite and weak. Verse 21, they are fully dressed in all of their regalia to once again show that all of this is going to be destroyed and taken from them, and also extra clothes means extra fuel. He wants these guys to go up and to go up quickly. So much so that when these men of his army toss these three guys in, the heat overcomes them and they are killed and they're not even in the furnace. And then, of course, in the fourth place this morning, we see that their resolve is rewarded. Nebuchadnezzar's fury turns to astonishment. How many men do we cast into the fire? Now, notice this. What astounds him is not the fact, initially, that these guys do not burn rather rapidly. You would expect that when you throw people into a fiery furnace, they're consumed fairly quickly. That's not what astonishes him. What astonishes him is, hang on a second, I'm doing some math here. How many guys did we throw in? Well, we threw three guys in. And he says in verse 25, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, I don't know what it takes to impress Nebuchadnezzar, but whoever this person was, they caused Nebuchadnezzar to be in awe. Now, all we have is a pagan king's description of who this person was, but most commentators believe that indeed this was not just an angel, but in fact, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. God didn't need to do this. If these three young men had been burned up, God still would be glorified. And we read in Hebrews 11, there are times where God steps in in miraculous ways, and there's times when God doesn't, and in both circumstances, he is to be glorified. But every once in a while, God shows up in a big way. And I can't imagine what it would have been like in the middle of that fire furnace. What's going through your mind as you approach the fiery furnace? That resolve's been tested. But now the moment's here. Are we going to beg for mercy? Or are we resolved all the way to the end? And those moments just before they get tossed in, I, I, I don't know what they were thinking. It doesn't say in the text. But if it was me, I'll see you soon, Lord. I'm coming home. It's over. 
Now to be inside the fiery furnace, having a conversation. I don't know what topic of conversation you'd be having inside of a fiery furnace, not sure, but they're talking. And then Jesus shows up. Praise God. Praise God for his amazing grace. So he asked them to come out and come to him, which they do. They walk out of this fiery furnace. They are inspected. Their clothes are not touched. Their hair is not singed. And perhaps one of the greatest realities of this miracle is they don't even have the smell of fire on them. Now, if you can remember summer, I know that was a long time ago, especially after the other day. But if you can remember back to summer and having backyard bonfires, what happens when you're just sitting in close proximity to a very small fire? Those clothes smell like smoke. They smell like a bonfire into the next day and beyond. These guys are in the middle of a fiery furnace and don't even smell like there's no indication that that, has, that is where they have been. Now notice the decree that Nebuchadnezzar makes. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which he had just done in verse 15, shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there's no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Stop short of personal confession of sin and repentance, but does certainly recognize that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God is more powerful than him and than his gods. But we are not done. Because notice in the fourth, fifth point this morning, the ultimate resolve. Every passage of scripture speaks of Jesus, but you can't miss that here in this. Jesus' ultimate resolve. Our assurance of pardon come, came from Isaiah chapter 50, and in there the servant of the Lord sets his face like flint. Christ knew why he was coming. He had a job to do, and that was to provide redemption. And he knew what it would mean. He knew that it would mean not only him experiencing death, which he did not have to do as the only perfect human being who ever lived, but also as God, mysteries that are still explored. But it was not just the physical sufferings of his crucifixion from which we get the word excruciating, but it was the fact that on that cross, God the Father would treat God the Son as if he had personally committed every sin that you and I will ever commit. He bore the wrath of Almighty God against our sin. He drank that cup down to the dregs, the cup of wrath that he says to his Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. In Mark's Gospel... 831, 930 to 31, and 1033 to 34. Three times in a short period, Jesus lets his disciples know, I'm going to Jerusalem. And there, the leaders, the religious leaders of the people are going to come against me, and they are going to crucify me. I'm going to die. The first time Peter says, No, Lord, it's not going to happen. Jesus, come here, I'm going to talk to you for a minute. And Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. Even his own trusted disciple wanted to dissuade him from the task, and Jesus set his face like flint. He had resolved to do what God had sent him to do. 
And the next two times, immediately after, the disciples have an argument over who's going to be greatest in his kingdom. They don't get it. And oftentimes, unfortunately, neither do we. But notice in the first place that Jesus embraces the difficult path. There is no suffering that you will endure that your Savior has not already endured. There is no path that God will ask you to walk that has not already, already been walked by your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus knows your suffering. We have a high priest, as we saw in Hebrews, that is touched by our infirmities. He knows what it is to be us. He became one of us and still is one of us. There is no betrayal so deep, no heartache so grievous that the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, does not know and does not care. He's walked that road. He knows. His resolve was to do the will of the Father who sent him. And these three young men, like him, also resolved, and Jesus resolved to embrace the difficult path. Notice that he never lets us suffer alone. He does not remove the suffering, but he's there with us in and through it. Even going back to Psalm 23, yes, and even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Jesus sends his disciples out into a boat knowing that he also is going to send a storm. He doesn't remove the storm, but he does come to them in the midst of it. These three young men had no idea what was about to happen. But they had faith. They trusted in God. And God shows up. However, even though Jesus does not let us ever suffer alone, he did for us. Everyone left. That same disciple that said, I will die for you, denied he even knew him three times. Jesus suffered all alone so that you and I never have to. And thanks be to God, Jesus succeeds everywhere we fail. Our resolve is not what it ought to be by times. Either we don't have it, it disappears in the face of conflict and confrontation, or we do have it, but we have it in the wrong way that does not reflect his character. Thanks be to God by his grace for those moments when we both have resolve and have resolve in the right way. But thanks be more to God for the reality that every time we fail, Jesus has already succeeded. What is his approach to those who believe that they have his life in their hands? As a sheep before its shearers does not speak, Jesus felt no need to justify himself, to bring any attention to himself. Jesus was silent. My kingdom, he says, is not of this world. 
And so Grace Baptist Church, persecution, I believe, is coming. And some of you have already begun to feel it. God's truth, not just on the fact that we are sinners, but even who we are as human beings. As the article that I posted on Friday says, it's not just that we are hated for telling individuals that they are sinners such as I. We are hated for telling individuals that they are simply male and female, made in the image of God. We're not only hated for grace, we're now hated for nature. The views of truth are no longer accepted, allowed, we might even say, in our culture and society. So we are not called to belligerence, we are not called to arrogance, and we are certainly not called to hatred. But we are called to follow the path that our Savior blazed for us. And that is to humbly, graciously, mercifully, stand for the truth. May God give us the grace and strength we need to do so. Let's look to him in prayer this morning. Father, I thank you for your great love for us. I thank you indeed for this reality that everywhere we fail, your Son, our Savior, has succeeded. Father, this story ultimately is not about the heroics of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are not the hero of this story as no individual in Scripture is ever the hero of the story. Just as we are never the hero of the story, life is not about us, it's about you. You are the hero of this story. You showed up in ways that you were not obligated to do, but in ways that so reflect your character. Father, we thank you for Christ who had this resolve. May we, through him, by his Holy Spirit, be resolved as well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.